You're listening to The Emulsion Podcast, a show that informs and inspires the restaurant industry to work, live, and create better. My name is Justin Kana, and I'm a chef and media producer with almost 10 years of experience in award-winning restaurants all over the world. I created this show as a way to give back, to inspire the next generation, and to help you progress your career. The Emulsion Podcast is sponsored by you folks, and Patreon is where that happens. If you're here as a return listener and you enjoyed the episode you just came from and happen to want to support more episodes, I'd really appreciate it. Go ahead and check out patreon.com slash justincana. Thanks in advance if you can. I totally understand if you can't. Free ways you can support this show include leaving a like or comment on this video, filling up all five stars on iTunes, or simply sharing an episode with a friend. This is an interview show. If you missed out on asking your burning question to today's guest, don't let that happen again. There is a really handy-dandy form where you can see upcoming guests and ask them your questions. Be sure to check out justincona.com slash podcast. I'd encourage you to see who I've got coming up. I thought I would just keep going as an executive chef until... I'd run out of steam, mm-hmm. um, but you know, I, I hit a certain point where my priorities changed, and I never thought they would. Totally. I always thought I'd be the last person. I was super excited to get today's guest on the show because I'm still learning about him myself. Derek Boogie is a chef, a dad, and a taco-creating machine that I had the pleasure of meeting in the fall of 2017. We ended up Instagram messaging each other as like, hey, you're a chef in Seattle. I'm a chef in Seattle. Let's meet up. And we instantly hit it off. Derek is very uh, matter-of-fact, which I really enjoy. He speaks his mind 100%. Originally growing up in Ballard, right here in Seattle, Derek worked his way through kitchens in Portland and Seattle alike, eventually opening up 99 Park on the east side, as well as 2120 downtown in the Belltown neighborhood, which instantly got good reviews when it opened last year. Spoiler alert, he's no longer there, but he was the winner of Guy's Grocery Games on Food Network during their fine dining episode, and he's currently working on another very high-profile opening here in Seattle, but I'm like... 94% sure I'm not okay to disclose that information, so I'll just rely on you to follow along with Derek's journey to learn a little bit more about that. We talk, is culinary school worth it? His dream job serving perfect tacos. Is there such thing as a perfect taco? Good and bad advice to young chefs and so much more. It's not often that I will get an executive chef here on the show. They don't often have the most flexible schedules, so I'm feeling very fortunate to have Derek on. I really, really hope you enjoy this episode. Do you get inspired by food trips? I do, 100%, um, because I already have my ideas of what I'm going to be experiencing, um, and it's fun to compare those expectations to reality once I actually get to the destination. What was it for you, because you haven't been to Italy before. I've never been there. Where Where were your expectations? Um, I didn't really have any, uh, because I've never really been a huge consumer of Italian food uh, here. Uh you know, my options are in Seattle and the Northwest are kind of limited as far as what I, I consider to be authentic Italian food. So I very much went with an open mind. And uh, so Italy was, was an interesting, was an interesting thing. But it was, it was, had I had expectations, I think they would have exceeded them with a higher quality of food than I was expecting. You know, every single pasta dish was cooked perfectly. All the sauces were amazing. You could tell all the ingredients were fresh. Um, you know, they definitely take pride in their, their national cuisine. That was one thing that stood out for me a lot was, I mean, you've had handmade pasta before, right? It's like, it's not, it's not the first time, but I don't know what it was. It was like something about it, like the texture or the way that it was served or like, I I don't know what it was. Do you know what I'm talking about though? I do 100%. Um, I'm also a firm believer in that your environment has a lot to do with. So being there. Yeah. Having just as much, Mm -hmm. you know, having, having that dish. In a trattoria in Rome, 
if I had had that exact same dish on my kitchen table at home, it wouldn't have tasted as good. Got it. You know, I, it's, uh, you know, eating is not just about the food. It's about the experience. It's about who you're sharing it with. It's about where you're at. It's about, you know, even what music you're listening to, what kind of mood you're in. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, uh, we've all had dishes multiple times that are made to be the same way. You know, take McDonald's, for example. You eat a McChicken. It's going to taste exactly the same. Same every single time, 100% of the time. But it's depending on your mood or where you're eating it. or how You know, you can make a McChicken taste good if you're sitting there with someone you love in a good mood, you know, on a beach somewhere. Maybe that's why it's like, it's comfort food for me because that's like when I would like go out with my friends when we were teenagers, we'd go get McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, I don't know. I have very strong memories of that. A poor I totally get it. You know, it's, uh, I will forever love McDonald's ice cream. Mm-hmm. Always. Mm-hmm. My entire life. Uh, when I was a little kid, I fell out of the bathtub and I um, knocked out my two front teeth. And fortunately they were baby teeth, but still hurt. I was crying and crying and crying. My mom was like, if you stop crying, I'll get you anything you want. And so I wanted this toy rifle, and so I stopped crying. But I remember after I went to the doctor, I went and got uh, ice cream from McDonald's. And so it was just this nostalgic value to me. It reminds me of one of my, you know, one of my most prominent childhood memories. And uh, whether I like the taste or not, I don't really know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's going to taste the same every single time. It's going to remind me of a uh, happy childhood. Mm-hmm. So I always revert to, you know, stories like that. So how do you, how do you get your McDonald's ice cream? Is it in a cone? Just in a cone, yeah. No dip, no fudge? No. I get no dip, no yeah. sauce, no nothing. Uh-huh. I just get... I'm a purist. Yeah? You know, I'm an absolute purist at heart. Look at my coffee. It's black. Yep. I eat pepperoni pizza. I like plain cheeseburgers, which, you know, um, mayo, ketchup, lettuce, tomato, onion. Um, I don't go for all the blue cheese and fried onion rings and stuff. I am absolutely a purist when it comes to food. Um... I like the simple things done right rather than the complicated things not done well. Sure. I'm going to write down some notes as we're going through here because there's some things that I want to ask. Uh, simple. Um, what about Paris? What uh, did When you went prior to Paris, were you at like a still moldable phase in your life? No. Uh, I didn't go to Paris till later on uh, in life. And uh, I... <laughs> I never wanted to go to Paris. Um, I didn't really have any expectations. You know, I, I grew up with this uh, this idea of what the French were. You know, you have those preconceived notions that they're snooty and pompous and arrogant and they smell. And that wasn't the case at all. Um, everyone in France and especially Paris was, they're so fantastic. The people are so genuine and so nice. Um, maybe it had something to do with the fact that I told them I was Mexican and I just spoke Spanish. Uh, I didn't tell anybody I was American. Uh, but the people in Paris are fantastic. They're always willing to help. They always have smiles on their faces, and um, yeah, they're just a fantastic people. Um, I, I love it there. Um, is was there a particular? Do you do you recommend that people go if they're going to go if they're cooks? Because there's that classic notion of like the chef that goes to Europe and particularly in France that like they walk away completely changed. Have you, do you see that? Do you recommend that? Do you think that it's still that kind of city, or it's not? Um, I've never studied. Uh, I've never studied in France as far as culinary goes. I've never studied in France at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the days of that true like French cuisine being, you know, like Paris being the mecca for high end cuisine. I think those days are over. Um, you know that the white tablecloth French 
cream and butter-based sauces. That's, Paris doesn't like that anymore, right? No. Like, it's not even just like the world doesn't like that. No, it's like, there's so much international influence on mm-hmm. that, you know, that, um, you know, I think um, Bocuse was kind of the last of that era. Um, you know, he was the last man standing. And, I, you know, unfortunately with his passing, I think those days are gone. Right. Um, you know, they obviously still have um, an, the, the very high level of cuisine. Um, but I think, you know, <clears throat> Spain is, is kind of where it's gravitated towards lately, you know, with the advancements of molecular gastronomy and all that. I think they're at the forefront now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had to go back to Italy... Would you do the same trip, or you would try to explore? Uh, no. If I had to go back to Italy, I would head south. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we started in Rome and went north, uh, which was great. You know, it was a great experience. I have no regrets. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, when I go back, um, I'm, I'm definitely going to start at Rome and head south. Sure. End up in Sicily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a similar... It's the same, because we did three cities in Italy... And it still feels it's. I have the same answer. I want to go back and I want to do something different. Yeah, because like, and that's cool as a country, right? Especially, oh, it's fantastic. Because, I mean, there's some places you go where it's like you can go experience a city or two and feel like you've experienced their culture. Feel like I've just like scratched the surface. Yeah, with Italian food. Yeah, and kind of you know, kind of like who we're talking uh, about London. Mm-hmm. I uh, not to get ahead of myself, but I feel like I've kind of picked up yep. most of what England's about. Same. Just, you know, having been in that little bit. Um, with Italy, I mean, every city felt different. Every every city had its own culture, its own food, its own style. You know, even um, the the infrastructure of mm-hmm. every city looked completely different. Sure. I mean, Rome and, and Florence, they looked completely different. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I really want to go back and explore, you know, the coastal cities, the, the islands, and uh, it was a lot of fun. You were the first, well, maybe not the first, but you were one of the only people I remember that backs me up that London is just not that exciting. No. What is, what is it about it that just doesn't, is it too internet, like it doesn't have an identity? So here's how I've been explaining it to people because mm-hmm. you know, everybody says the same thing. Um, the way that we planned the trip, we started out in Italy, you know, worked our way through northern Italy and then went over to France through Paris and then went over to London. Now, if you think of that route as a shower... It was like taking a nice long hot shower and then turning on the cold right at the end. <laughs> it was like we were blanching and then just getting thrown yep. in the ice water. Um, you know, we were in these romantic cities of Rome and Florence and Paris where people spoke a different language and the food was exotic and the styles were exotic and people dressed differently. And then we got to London. You know, maybe our expectations were different because, you know, we had been in these magical places that, you know, you see and dream about. And then we're in a land where people speak English. Yep. Um, you know, London is a very, very crowded city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people are not as uh, <laughs> nice about it as they are in other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, the food was uh, the food was comparable to what we have in the United States as far as flavor profiles and, and uh, cooking styles. Um, it, there's The infrastructure is kind of decrepit. Um, you know, it's, a lot of it is, is uh, post-World War II because of, you know, unfortunately what happened with the bombings and stuff, raids over World War II. So a lot of it is newer. You know, it doesn't have quite that history that, that Rome does or that, you know, any part of Italy or France. Um, it was just kind of, it felt cold. Mm. You know, not, mm-hmm. not just the temperature, but the whole city sure. itself felt cold. I feel the same way. And it's not to hate on anyone that's from there, but it's just, there's something, maybe, maybe that is what it is, is I feel like... I'm in Europe, but there's too much of that 
Americanized something, whether it's the language or whether it's like the 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 culture where they're like, I don't know, there's like a weird crossover. It's trying to be too international or right. what? I don't know what it is. England just doesn't. Maybe not England. I haven't explored. Have you explored outside of London? Maybe that's another question. Uh, the, the, no, the only other part of UK that I've been to is Dublin, mm-hmm. um, and I kind of felt the same. Um, I was not a fan of Dublin at all. Sure. Um, I felt very persecuted in Dublin, which Whoa. is interesting. Whoa. Uh, which is something that I wasn't even expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was there was a lot of hostility and animosity towards me in Dublin, outside of uh, Dublin in Southern Ireland. It was fantastic. You're fine? Yeah. Interesting. When was that? When did you go to Ireland? <sighs> Two years ago. Okay. Cool, cool, cool. A year and a half. Uh, taking it back to the sentence you said earlier about being a purist, I know that we've talked a little bit about you doing tacos somehow, some way after this. Mm-hmm. What is the purest version of a taco for you? Oh. If you had to, like, articulate it. Oh, man, that's a tough one. Um, well, maybe you can break it down into <clears throat> different styles of taco. Because I know, like, you can't say that a pure taco... My uh, A friend of mine from Ensenada would argue that, like, a fish taco, like a fried fish taco is, like, See, super and simple and pure, and, like, that's it. That's where we differ. Um, you know, my background is uh, southern Mexico, mainly Oaxaca. Got Virginia. it. Uh, a fish taco is not a taco. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, a nice braised meat, you know, a nice mm. carnitas taco. Mm-hmm. It's just perfect. Carnitas, a little bit of queso fresco, and mm-hmm. some, uh, you know, pickled onions, a little jalapeno. Yep. Uh, salsa verde. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's, it's tough to be uh, <clears throat> a purist when it comes to tacos. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess I am. Uh, you know, now that I think about it, I've never actually combined the two thoughts together. Right. Uh, but I don't like, you know, I'll never put shredded lettuce on my taco. That's not a thing. Don't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, don't do that in front of me anyway. Is it always a corn tortilla? Uh, always. What's the other option? It, always two. Two tortillas. Always two always corn tortillas. Always two corn tortillas. Yeah. Always two corn tortillas. Okay. There's, there's no other tortillas yeah, other yeah. than corn tortillas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Flour tortillas <laughs> is not a thing. Um... So where does where does it stand for you with different? Maybe I'm trying to uh, tease out a little bit of the similarities that you see between Mexican food and that Italian journey, where it's like things differ depending on where you go. And do you have um, obviously, if you're thinking more Oaxacan style stuff, that's where you're going to gravitate towards. But is there any other regions in Mexico where you're like? Yeah, I've traveled uh, quite a bit through Mexico, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um, you know, similar to the United States, Mexico is very diverse in its demographic as far as cuisine goes. Um, you know, there are some things, like take a, uh, a sope, for example. Sope is a flat tortilla with the sides pinched up, toppings over the center. Um, they call it different things in different parts of the country. Um, some of them are unrecognizable to, me, <clears throat> excuse me, unrecognizable to me. They call them huaraches in some parts. Sopes, picadas. Um, these are all different names for the same thing. Um, there's also different flavor profiles because there's just different... Uh, climates you know down out in the yucatan peninsula there are foods and flavors that i have no understanding of whatsoever kind of the same in the north too you know uh northern mexico southern texas um you know they have the same the same climate so they're gonna have different foods up there um so that's kind of how i felt with italy you know italy uh from what little i have to compare to as far as mexico goes you know um the it's kind of separated into like cream sauces and tomato sauces um, uh, I, you know, unfortunately, I didn't have the time to 
you know, travel the country extensively and make as many comparisons as I like. But, um, you know, I could see that there were some regional foods that were, were definitely stood out. Mm. Do you have any, pl- um, when you're making dinner for your wife, have you guys made pasta yet? Since we've been back. Yeah, now. yeah. No. no. It was like the first thing I immediately, we called it, what did we call it? We did a, a dinner maybe like three weeks after we came back, and I did a dish called Winter in Bologna because it was like I just wanted to make pasta. There was like no other <laughs> – I had no good reason to do it. I just wanted to do it. That would be – yeah, we're probably going to do that, but, uh, you know, we've only been back for, what, 48 yeah, yeah, hours? Exactly, we're, we're little, exactly. We're a little jet lag jet still. Jet lag still. Um, but, no, I think once it settles in, we're definitely going to try it. I know, for one, I'm definitely going to try and replicate this uh, carbonara that I had, the yeah, Trattoria. totally. Oh, God. Got to find guanciale. No, that's easy. Yeah. Get some guanciale. Yeah. It's so good. Oh, yeah. Um, it was such a good, uh, we'd make that for staff meal quite a bit. Because it's just like, it makes people happy. Oh, yeah. Pasta makes people happy. Um, <laughs> I, um, if you were to go back to Mexico, what would you be looking to gain? If, fr- from, from a chef's perspective. Um, more of an understanding of the flavor profiles that come from the region where my mom's from. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until recently, and by recently I mean the last several years, that I really identified my cooking style with Latin flavors. Um, I've kind of been freestyling it, kind of picking up what I could here and there from different chefs that I worked for over the years. Um, and I didn't really have a true identity. Um, it wasn't until I took over 99 on the east side um, that I really, you know, we really wanted to rebrand as far as what our cuisine was. And we kind of, the, the menu was kind of all over the place. It mm-hmm. was, you know, mussels with curry and you know um there's a little japanese there was a little indian there's a little little of everything and so we sat down with the owners and we thought well, okay what can we identify with latin cuisine is what i know it's what i love it's what i was raised on it's the understand it's the flavors that i understand the best so we rebranded that modern american with latin fusion um ever since we made that decision i have taken it on personally to better myself as far as latin cuisine goes um so if i I would love to go back to Mexico, spend some time with some chefs, um, both high profile and the higher end restaurants, the Pujols of the world. Um, but really what I'd love to do is just go out into the country and work with the little old women who, you know, feed the men who come out of the fields. Totally. And, you know, who make mole from scratch and who make, you know, the tortillas on the comal. And that's really where you're going to get a good understanding of where those Latin flavors come from. I would really... I want to dive deeper into that because it's something that I'm currently going through myself where it's like I spent a lot of time cooking other chefs food like that was all my training which I would never discourage anyone to not do but then you get to this point where you're like what is your identity what because you didn't you grew up here in 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 Seattle well in Ballard yeah um when was that point and what were some if, if you have advice for anyone listening that is looking to get that style what what has proved valuable for you? What has proved valuable to me is to have, to think for yourself. Um, and the thing that I can most closely relate it to, as, as you know, I just recently became a father. And um, having your own cooking style is like a son growing up. Um, you know, you have a certain set of ideals that you are passed on from your father, which, you know, is other chefs. You have these ideals that are passed on through your career, basically through your nurturing stages, becoming a cook into a chef. You have these nurturing years of things that are passed on to you eventually you gain enough um, experience and ideas where you can make your own ideas where you're no longer under the umbrella of 
your chef or your father. You can now go out and bloom and grow for yourself. And really that point uh, hit me several years ago. I was around 31, 32 years old. And I realized that, you know what, I've gained enough experience and ideas and I feel confident in myself to where I can go out to the world and, and start to rebrand my name and, and uh, you know, create a reputation based on my own ideas. Um, and a lot of it was having the confidence to do that. Um, you really, really need to be confident about what it is you're doing. I mean, I've been doing this since I was 19 and it took me until I was about 32 to really make that decision that, you know what, this is, this is what I'm good at. This is what I love. Um, this is what I'm going to embrace and move forward with. And I've, that's exactly what I've done. And so I have made a brand name for myself with, you know, Latin style cooking. And, um, I'm not anywhere near to where I want to be as far as, as that, as that goes. Do I draw a lot of comparisons between food and, and music. Do you recommend, um, that kind of period where you're playing cover songs where like did you ever have a point where you were taking other chef's dishes that were like I can identify with that so this is what I'm going to cook and I'm going to see what it turns into when I put my hands on it um did you have any dishes that were like oh my god this is such a perfect fusion like I know I've, I've, I've had that lately with Indian food quite a bit where it's like I look at food with my perspective that I have with the skills that I have but I kind of like put on these Indian gl- glasses and through those lenses, you can see something that like you never would have thought of before had you not done that. Yes and no. Um, I never wanted to replicate a dish mm-hmm. uh, because I it's kind of the whole do much others thing. Mm-hmm. I would never want to sell something that's not mine as my own. Right. Uh, but in that, you know, I, you're always going to have an idea from somebody else. Sure. You know, chicken stock has already been invented. That's what I like. You know, it's yep. kind of the analogy. I yep. You're never going to, I don't want to say never, but... You're not going to create something new. Mm-hmm. Um, so every idea is going to be taken from another idea. So yeah, you know, I had my mentor who was down in Portland, um, who I always think of as the most influential person in my life as far as culinary goes. Mm-hmm. I use a lot of his ideas and dishes that I do, and but definitely put my own take on them. And that's what you need to do. You can't, you know, you can't start to go out on your own and forget everything that you've ever learned. Right. You know, that's that's not the way it works. It's, sure. There's a reason you, that you build up to it. You know, through grade school, high school, and then college, mm-hmm. you're all you're just building on ideas and uh, concepts and experiences that you already have. Mm-hmm. Has there been any other resources that you found particularly valuable with your food? I know that I get a lot of inspiration from um, other art forms, particularly music. When I'm thinking about um, I mean, it's why I draw so many comparisons is when I talk about cover songs and, like, there's value in uh, remixing, right? Like, there are DJs who don't write any of their own songs. They just, like, <laughs> take other people's songs, spin it, sure. and then it works. Um, do you get any inspiration from anywhere else other than, you know, food or eating or... Uh, yeah, the Northwest. Totally. So I spend a lot of time outdoors. Mm-hmm. Um, I You know, we live in the most beautiful area that I've ever been to, personally. Um, there's so much influence outside the wild mushrooms, just the smells and the flavors and the foliage and um, everything you see outside. So uh, one thing that people around me know is that I go to the Pipe Place Market probably once a week, mm-hmm. at least once a week. Mm-hmm. And I just walk up and down and I you know, talk to the vendors. They all know me. And yep. like, hey, what's fresh? What's good? What's coming up? What's ending? Um, and I always just start with one idea, one ingredient and think, okay, here I have these you know, beautiful black trumpet mushrooms. I'm going to have these for the next six weeks. What goes well with that? Okay, now i got two things. And so these, these ideas always develop. So um, Seattle is my inspiration. Totally. Um, I don't really listen to a lot of music, not mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, do you think that there is a 
stigma behind those. Um, I'm coming from the perspective of um, being really passionate about working with nice ingredients, but I feel like there's so many other things that go into it um, as far as what what is it about sourcing the ingredients that gets you excited? I like to know where my products come from. Got it. Um, so a big thing for me is is whenever I've taken over a restaurant, I want to meet every vendor individually. And Dope. going uh, beyond that, I want to meet every individual farmer mm. that I can. Um, I've spent a significant amount of time up in the Skagit Valley finding where all my produce comes from. I've actually pulled cauliflower from the fields at, uh, at Houghton with them. Um, I have gone to the oyster farms out in Lillawap and Hamahama and uh, up in um, Lopez Island with Jones Family Farms. Um, I've been to the coast and met some of the, the fishmongers there. I travel to as many places as I can so that I actually have a better understanding of where my product comes from, not just because I like to know where it comes from, because I have, I'm going to treat it with more respect. Sure. And if the first time I see something is when it comes out of a box, it doesn't really mean anything to me. If I have actually spent the time to travel to Skagit, to Houghton Farms, and put my hands in the dirt and worked with the farmers, and I know that's where it comes from, I'm going to treat it with a lot more respect. Yeah, and when you see it, it has a different right. meaning. And some of these guys are like, yeah, we were talking a while back about, like, you had some of these guys at your wedding. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what? Two, yeah, two of my groomsmen were our vendors of mine and our very, very dear friends. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, I need to I need to make it out to some of these places and uh, do that exploring. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. The Hamahama uh, <clears throat> Oysters, you ever heard of them? I'm going. Uh, Patrick has an event with them. Where okay. he's doing like a live art something where they're doing their I don't know what the event is called it's like a big oyster oyster thing. Rama. yeah mm-hmm. yeah so uh, I'm going I'm going for that oh I'm fantastic. super excited yeah oyster rum is a lot of fun yeah um they're like second family to me um you know the everyone from the owner the from to the people who picked the oysters totally um I've you know they've I've had a very very close relationship with those guys over the years mm-hmm. um, fantastic people um me being super new to Seattle and you having spent a lot of time here, what is kind of your state of the union on Seattle as, as far as like how it stands, not just as its own city, but compared to other U.S. cities? And what are you excited about? What are you kind of like, this? I'm so over this in Seattle right now? If, if you have any... Are we any, going beyond food? We can. All right. I on. mean, because, you, you know, <laughs> you, you have some roots here. You have some pretty I, stable roots here. I don't, yeah, I don't want to, you know, take this time to stand on my soapbox and right. complain about... Uh, you know, all the buildings that are going up, <laughs> yep. but I will. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm really excited about the food. Yeah. Um, as you know, I was born and raised here, mm-hmm. and I went to culinary school down in Portland. And I, after after school, I stayed for another seven years. Um, at that time, Portland was really, had overtaken Seattle as far as a scene, as, a, as far as the culinary scene goes. Um, and uh, lately, Seattle has kind of taken that throne back. Yep. And I'm really, really excited about that. I'm really excited for uh, Seattle to get more recognition than it's been getting. You know, Canlis just got recognized as, as made the shortlist for James Beard Best Restaurant. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I honestly never thought I would see that. You know, Eduardo is getting so much Huge. well-deserved credit for mm-hmm. June Baby and Solari. I mean, he's doing amazing things. Um, it, there's so much happening as far as what has happened in Seattle in the past. You know, Seattle's finally being recognized, and, you know, people are starting to think, okay, it's not just Southeast Alaska anymore. It's actually its own city with its own ideas, its own style of cuisine. 
Um, you know, I love oysters. I've had oysters from, I don't want to say all over the world, but I've definitely had... Your fair share. My fair share. I think our, our oysters are by far the best. Mm. You know, I've had a significant amount from Europe and Virginica's from the East Coast and from, you know, from Japan and our, our Pacifics that we grow here, which is funny because, um, you know, Washington only has one native oyster. Right. Um, but the oysters that we have here and cultivate here are, are my belief, second to none. Mm. You know, some of these some of the seafood we have you know i love that my salmon and my halibut is pulled from you know miles from where i live mm-hmm. um that's funny i was talking to my aunt and uh <laughs> she lives in wisconsin mm-hmm. and she said he, she gets her salmon from walmart <laughs> i just thought oh fuck Are damn it saying? yeah right <laughs> damn it i didn't really know what to say to that uh, you know but i love the abundance of I'm, I'm glad that people are starting to recognize the abundance of resources that we have here with the mountains, um, the mountains and the fields, the valleys, you know, the Skagit Valley, the mm-hmm. Cascades, you can go foraging for the best chanterelles you will ever have. Totally. Um, you know, you get your morels there, the um, Matsutakis come from the Olympics, you have all that beautiful, beautiful produce that comes out of the North Skagit, and then, you know, the water speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. You have every kind of beautiful, I mean, if you're if you haven't had a hood canal spot prawn, you've never had a shrimp. Wow, that's my opinion. Okay, you know, as there's, it's like butter flavored shrimp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fantastic. Totally. Um, what does what is Seattle is Seattle missing anything, or is there anything you'd like to see kind of like come through Seattle? Does it need anything? Is it on the right track? Is it is it need to be? I think Seattle is on the right track. One okay. thing that I uh, will stand on my soapbox and talk about mm-hmm. is the Michelin rating. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that Canlis is well deserving of at least a still one star. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, um, I have never been a Michelin judge, so I don't know what it takes. Uh, but I have been to Michelin restaurants, and I do know that Canlis is up there. As far as caliber goes, caliber with cuisine and caliber with the wine list and the uh, the hospitality, mm-hmm. um, I I know it's challenging because there's there's not many restaurants in the Northwest. Um, you know, I can probably I could probably name less than five if I really thought about it that are deserving of a Michelin star that are deserving of a Michelin star. Um, but I'd really like to see the opportunity for restaurants. You know. In particular, you know, restaurants like that, Canlis, mm-hmm. who have been established and have that reputation. So that's my big rant on the whole thing is that is why um, the fine dining scene in, in Seattle, where, like you said, Canlis would probably be a one star. Why is there no one shooting for two and three? Like, why is there no restaurant where you and I both go three stars? Totally this place. Um I argue because there is no Michelin guide because all of that work and all of that dedication and time and effort spent to build a restaurant like that, a lot of chefs do it for the stars at the end of that road. Sure. And if you're not going to get that kind of recognition, if the best thing you're going to get is like a James Beard and a mention in the Seattle Times, it doesn't do it for a lot of chefs, right? Yes. So I would rather, like as a chef, this chef would rather go to Chicago, San Francisco, New York, right, or D.C. One of the only four cities that have Michelin guides. But, I mean, you even look at D.C. There's no three-star Michelin in D.C. Right. They still have a guide. Uh, I talked in the podcast a couple weeks ago about how I think that Michelin is very much so in this weird position in the U.S. right now where they would be better off doing similar to how they do Scandinavia where they break down into regions. So what if there was a Michelin guide for the West Coast? What does that look like? Right, because then it's like Washington, Portland, San Francisco, and LA, which right. doesn't have a Michelin guide right now, all get roped in. 
that makes it interesting. And then there's a Midwestern Michelin guide and then an East Coast Michelin guide. That could be interesting. But that's where my head's at with it is is if the recognition's not there, like Canlis has been around forever. Um, but I agree, it would help a lot. I just I just don't necessarily think I think that would draw in a lot of everyone would come out of the woodwork and try to go for the stars after that. Uh, wholeheartedly right? agree. Right? Yeah, it's um it's kind of a balance too because I don't think Seattle's really ready to receive that kind of cuisine yet too. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why we kind of have the unofficial term of Seattle Fine Dining. Right, right. You, know, you look at the Tom Douglas and Ethan Stoles mm-hmm. of the world and um, Josh Henderson. And he, you know, some of their restaurants are the quote unquote Seattle Fine Dining. We don't really have that <laughs> yep. white tablecloth, yep. you know, English hospitality style restaurant mm-hmm. uh, just for that reason. Oh. Um, um, but I don't think Seattle's really ready, to be honest, to receive that caliber of restaurant as well sure the, you know the bernardines or mm-hmm. linear the graces of the world mm-hmm. um i think some people have tried on a small small scale and it didn't really work you know I, josh henderson tried um the tasting menu at the nest mm-hmm. with their chef's tasting mm-hmm. um that didn't work yep um you know shoda tried it with naka um and it didn't work he had to close down and rebrand as adana which is doing amazingly well sure um so i, I just don't think seattle is quite ready to receive it's such a dichotomy, right? Because it's like you have all, like, we literally just talked about all this amazing product. We literally talked about all this expansion and all this money that's happening in the city. Yeah. And then at the same time, it's like, it's what I spent the le- like all of 2017 doing is figuring out why the hell is there no three Michelin star place here? Because it's like, it's so ripe for it, right? Like, it's such a white space, such an untapped thing. Um, it's so funny. I can't get, I, I, I can't get over the, that idea so maybe we can dive a little bit deeper into your experience as an executive chef here in seattle and maybe you can give us like a little quick one minute journey through what that's been like with 99 park in 2120 and then where you're at now so uh when i took over 99 park in january of 2016 um i had a blast i Mm -hmm. had full autonomy uh, you know, I was I had everything readily available to me. I had uh, control over everything. Um, and then, you know, I was quickly approached about opening 2120, the sister restaurant to 99. Um, where I jumped at the opportunity. You know, and like I said, I got to design the restaurant uh, from scratch. From the ground like, up. Th- from the ground up, you know, which is a dream come true for any chef. You know, handpick my... I, I really got to take the time to handpick and vet my cooks. Uh, and it's, it was an amazing experience. You know, I wouldn't have traded that for anything. Um you know, but as as some relationships go, it just fizzled, um, and now I'm at a place in my life with you know my my eighth month old son now and my wife where I need to be there for them more emotionally and physically, uh, more so emotionally. And so I'm kind of at this place where I'm trying to figure out the next step in my life. You know, I, I've done the executive chef thing, and I need to figure out if that's something that I want to continue or if I want to seek other options and other revenue streams in my life. Sure. Um, do you have any advice for anyone that's looking? Or in, during the process of that, taking on an executive chef role that you have from experience that, you know, might help? Oh, yeah. I mean, we were talking about it a little bit as, as far as how it pertains to me, but if there's a more kind of like umbrella piece of advice that you have from your experience that might help one person listening. Uh, yeah. Uh, for people who want to become an executive chef, I would say coming up as a cook, take the time to listen rather than talk. Um realize that every single person around you knows something that you don't 
if you don't take the time to you know get it out of them to really listen to what other people are saying um you're gonna fail you know you have to be humble and i know that's hard for cooks to accept because there's so much ego in in restaurants there's um i always i always revert back to the salad um the best salad i made was taught to me by a dishwasher at a mexican restaurant some years ago uh it was it was um a Yucatec habanero and pig ear salad. Whoa. And it's just, it's fantastic. And it just goes to that mindset of like, just because you are uh, a sous chef or a CDC, a chef de cuisine or something, that doesn't mean that other people, that you're better than every single person below you. You know, that think about how much experience is combined with those people that work around you. If you really, you know, take the time to listen to them, you're going to be a lot better chef for it, I think. Totally. Um, and so you are kind of like, there's nothing on your plate right now. That's where you're at, and that's where you're happy. That's, that's where I'm happy. Yeah, man. yeah. I, I'm just loving this time, uh, getting to hang out with Roman, my son, every day, and really bonding with him, and just relaxing, just uh, putting myself back together. You know, like I was saying earlier, I, I, put a lot of, uh, I put a lot of miles on my mind and my body over the last maybe 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I just kind of changing the tires and doing a couple slow laps right now totally uh just slowing down mm-hmm. um just taking some stress off and decompressing is there any we were talking a little bit about it that you missed the cap the restaurant cappuccinos oh. is there anything else that you miss about the restaurant or you're kind of like because i have a friend who she was an expediter at Tallulah's for a little while and then she's done a bunch of other like odd restaurant jobs in her life and we we've had this conversation multiple times where she tells me she misses restaurants there's something about it. Is it? I mean, it hasn't been that long, but is there anything like right off the bat where you, or maybe you foresee that you're gonna miss something about it? I liked. Uh, I miss teaching people. Mm-hmm. Um, I really. I, that's one thing that I, I'd miss since day one. Um, I like having eager cooks that are that want to better themselves and that have put them pla- themselves in a place, um, humility-wise, where they were willing to listen to me and. Uh, you know, not listen to me blindly, um, but they were they were in places where they wanted to learn from me, and uh, I was eager to teach them and willing. And that was one thing that I really, really enjoyed was teaching eager minds. Um, but outside of that, I don't miss it. <laughs> A restaurant cappuccino <laughs> every now and again. Yeah, every now, right and before again. the service. Yeah. How did you? T- it was a hot cappuccino. You don't? Do you like iced coffee? I do like iced coffee. I miss cappuccinos in Italy. Oh, I, that's that's got like, it. No, we. Uh, just sir, I would just black Umbria coffee uh-huh. is, is my your go to my go to. Yeah. I had to do that. Um, <laughs> it was like we had the strong we had the strongest hotline at the restaurant in Norway that we had had in the experience of the restaurant. And it got to a point where I would get set up for service consistently day after day, and my chef came to me and he's like, "I want you to start getting a I want you to add to your prep list a Cambro of iced coffee. Keep it in your low boy." <laughs> and you just dish it out to all the cooks. Perfect. It was like, are you like that? Do you like do you like the the iced coffee during during your shift? All depends on uh, how hot I am. Really. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm true Seattleite. In winter, it's hot coffee. In the summer, got well, it. S- got summers it. it gets here. I get. I'm finding I'm finding coffee. that as well. Um, I try to keep it to two cups a day. Otherwise, I get a little bit too. Eh. I've been trying to keep it to one. One? Uh, one cup a day. Um, I had some heart problems uh, last year. Ooh. And uh, my... my yeah. <laughs> I didn't get into that. 
No, I had some heart problems last year, and uh-huh. so I really needed to uh, start taking care of myself. Mm-hmm. And one of those things was minimizing my caffeine intake. Uh, so I try and limit myself to one cup in the morning. Sure. And that's it. That's it? Yeah. Well, my, yeah. I'm sorry I gave you another cup. No. <laughs> my, yeah, I was walking around my blood pressure. Well, my standing blood pressure is 160 over 125. Wow. And so, yeah. I'm supposed to give blood after this. For my, <laughs> I have a, I'm a universal donor, so okay. I try to give blood whenever I can. But uh, what, um, what do you think about it? with restaurants is it makes it so hard to think about your health because it becomes secondary right when you're there do you do you correct yeah restaurants are tough because they consume you mm-hmm. um as a cook it was easy um you know coming up through my 20s it was easy i would hang out in the morning you know do whatever and i would go to work do my job set up my line go through service i'd go home have fun you know drink with my buddies and forget about it um as an executive chef, that's when you start to bring your work home. Um, that's when other areas of your life start to suffer. You know, maybe not not even as executive chef, even as a sous chef. You know, you start to think about numbers. Are you going to hit your labor? Are you going to hit your food costs? You know, are you? You know, you start to think about prep. Did I make a good prep list? Did we? You know, down to little things like did I store the wa- the the walk in properly? <laughs> that thing's not labeled. Fuck. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean the these ideas just start to consume you and then you have this snowball effect where you want to go in early and you know you want to make sure everybody's set up and you want everybody to be doing things your way because you have these ideas in your head then that you want to come out as well as possible but you only have two sets of hands and then you know people call in sick every day and that's up to you to fill in and then you know the owners have ideas and gms have ideas and servers have ideas and you know this there's so many moving parts to a restaurant and the more managerial duties you have, the more these things stress on you, you know, and then, um, you know, we took it one step further where I wanted to make it to the top, you know, and so I was trying to stay relevant by changing the menu as often as I could. That's just an, an enormous undertaking in itself. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't, I didn't want to be quarterly. I wanted to be weekly. Yep. Um, you know, and you, it's unless you've done it, it's hard to explain how much work goes into a menu change. Um, you know, it's not just the dishes that you're coming up with; um, it's also teaching an entire staff, and then because just because you can make that dish right. doesn't mm-hmm. teaching an entire uh, kitchen staff, and then training an entire front of house how to you know teach it. I wanted to my service to explain it as if they had created the dish themselves. That goes a lot. You know, you're doing that on a weekly basis, and on top of that. You're worrying about food costs because you're changing over the menu so much. You're bringing in all this new products. It wears on you, you know. And I, I could go on for hours. I'm sure you could too about mm-hmm. how much stress is involved in running a restaurant. Totally. Um, and I just, I, I, I needed to take a step back. Right. right. Um, my priorities changed. You know, um, I never thought. As you know, as like we were talking about earlier, I never thought I'd be that person where my priorities. I thought I would just keep going as an executive chef until I had run out of steam. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, I hit a certain point where my priorities changed, and I never thought they would. Totally, I always thought I'd be the last person. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you hear so many stories about people who'd come into the restaurant, like you know, the fix the hood fans or the dish machine, or you know, they would sell you your linens or whatever, and then it was the same story every single time. Oh, I used to be a chef, you know, and I always said I'll never be that ever be that and i'm not quite to that point yet but i sure i am to the point where i understand mm-hmm. you know I, mm-hmm. I i used to think wow they just burnouts weren't right? cut out for it yeah or, mm-hmm. um you know i i judged mm-hmm. well, i'm not gonna lie i judged them 
um, I'm to the point where I no longer judge people for for the choices they make because they had different priorities, which I'm now walking into. You're experiencing that firsthand. Uh, Is there any sort of restaurant concept or food operation where you're like, that works? Not That's not a restaurant. I mean, uh, we were just talking about you doing taco pop-ups or something like that. Can a chef sustainably thrive doing what they do in another medium? Whether it's a restaurant or if there's something that you've seen where you're like, that works. So I guess that's kind of the point of my life where I am right now. Mm -hmm. Just trying to figure that out. Um, You know, like anybody who knows me knows that I would love to make tacos every day. (laughs) Nothing would make me happier. Uh, You know, unfortunately there's no money in tacos. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, I'm okay without the glamour and the accolades and the awards at this point. Uh, But at the same time, I have people that depend on me to pay bills. Um, and with that money comes everything that would suck the life out of tacos for exactly, you. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess to answer your question, I'm kind of at that point where I wonder if there is something where I can, you know, sustainably be happy without, you know, um, risking or sacrificing my personal life. Mm-hmm. To not make this episode too pessimistic, because, I mean, obviously, <laughs> from a certain point of view, you could say, like, this is, like, the most unmotivating episode ever. <laughs> is there, what would you say to the person who's in culinary school right now, right? Because, like, I feel like you're in this very unique part of, like, the hero's journey, right? Where you sure. just got, like, knocked down, and now you have to, like, figure out how to get, but you're going to come through the other side way better, Um would you have done it the same way going back to square one? Would you have done it completely? Or would you go back and tell yourself, Derek, do this a different way? <clears throat> if you were starting from zero. Uh, so before, before I forget, mm-hmm. is, is, uh, every single person goes through struggles. You know, and this, is, this isn't even a struggle for me. Um, this is just taking one step back so that I can take two steps forward. Right. That's the way I look at it. I'm mm-hmm. not thinking of it uh, pessimistically at all. Sure. Um, this is something that I need to do personally. Um, if I could do it all over again, if I could, you know, put me down in day one of culinary school, uh, I would, the only thing that I would do differently is the first couple of years of my career coming out of culinary school is, uh, I didn't take them as serious as I would have liked. I honestly didn't think I was going to do this for the rest of my life. Um, I would have paid more attention those first couple of years, but other than that, it's just, it's all about learning and learning and learning. You know, I can't emphasize that enough is, uh, learn as much as you possibly can. Be humble and just learn. And then the rest of it will, you know, will take care of itself. But absolutely, you know, I have no regrets as to what I did. I was, I was fortunate to where I had every opportunity in life. You know, I could have done anything that I wanted. Um, you know, I, I chose this career and I, I wouldn't have it any other way, even despite what I'm going through right now. Um, I know I wouldn't have been happier doing anything else, whether it be a desk job or fighting fires or flying planes or whatever. This is what I chose to do. This is what I love. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm just just taking a breather, Mm -hmm. which, you know, that's why they have sabbaticals. Right, exactly. To take it back and go a little bit more tactical or maybe strategy-wise, when you say you would have uh, gone a little bit harder at the beginning of your career, would that have meant taking a more ambitious job, going to work for someone that was maybe a little bit out of your league, reading more cookbooks, cooking a little bit more on your own, what would you have changed about that? Beginning? Glad you asked. Yeah. Um, I would have staged abroad. Okay. I for sure would have staged abroad. Um, I had the opportunity and I passed it up. Um, Where? 
at Burgundy. Okay. In Burgundy, France. Uh, one of the first chefs that I worked for. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely saw the abilities that I had early on. Um, abilities that I didn't think that I had early on. And he actually pushed. Mm-hmm. It was a large kitchen. It was a very, very large kitchen. And mm-hmm. he actually uh, I, you know, picked me out specifically. And, you know, he saw... I was just working basically as a saucier. And uh, he's like, Derek, you know, you have these abilities and this natural palate. I have some connections in France. I want to send you to Burgundy. And uh, I didn't do it. And, you know, I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave my friends, my family. And I was just, I was like 20. I was wanted yep. to party. Mm-hmm. And I was about to turn 21. Mm-hmm. Um, I really regret that. Because, you know, who who knows where my career would have sure. gone at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would have... Like I said, I would have taken it a lot more seriously. I would have staged abroad for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have been more ambitious in my uh, the, my choice of kitchens. I would have gone for for better than what I had through my early twenties. It wasn't because it wasn't until like my mid twenties that I was like, "Oh crap, this is what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life." I better start taking it more seriously. So I, was, I missed out on those first five years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you the type of person that spent a lot of time? focusing on technique did you go out to eat a lot when you were in those first years i know for me personally that was like it was such a blessing to go to culinary school 90 minutes away from new york city because that was all i did on my weekends was go down to manhattan and eat and that was just as valuable as staging at a restaurant do you did you have that same experience do you think that same applies to people now or does that not always I think if you have the means to do that mm-hmm. by all totally means, go ahead mm-hmm. um, I did not have money in culinary school I mm-hmm. did not have money coming out mm-hmm. the way that I got as much experience as I could is I uh, was only scheduled for 30 35 hours a week uh, but I would be there for 60 to 70 I would spend all my time there uh, learning technique learning different you know di- different uh, products different styles, different cuisines, um, because my chef at the time was so knowledgeable, he had, um, and he would teach me all this stuff because he saw that I was willing to learn, I would go in on my own time. Um, that's how I gained my experience. Mm-hmm. Is there a piece of advice that you see given to young cooks, or like line cooks, or sous chefs, or whatever, that you see as like, that's not true, or that's like a commonly... <laughs> mistakenly piece of advice given yeah but you're not gonna like it okay yeah <laughs> uh i would say don't go to culinary school okay i would wholeheartedly don't say it. don't mm-hmm. waste your money you know my my situation was even worse than most mm-hmm. uh, because i went to cordon bleu mm-hmm. which if you have yep. seen mm-hmm. um they just settled yep uh out of or they just settled in court for to pay back you know 44 percent of uh tuition tuition um well, be expecting that checks in yep <laughs> yep <laughs> um but no, you get under the right chef. You show ambition and eagerness to learn. The right chef will pick you up and they'll teach you in a year what you'll learn uh, at several years in culinary school. And I think that those those few early years of experience are much, much more valuable than culinary school. And this, to, to not get it twisted, and maybe this is my fault for not conveying it the right way, I'm not the biggest advocate for culinary school either. Uh, I get the question a lot, is culinary school worth it? Should I go? Um, especially CIA with the price check, the price amount that they put on their tuition. It's not cheap. Can I get the same amount of experience? Am I better off just going to work for free, staging, getting that line cook job, dishwasher job, working my way up? And yes, the answer is yes. Like I got more experience in six months working for free at per se as I did in two years of culinary school and that set me up for greater success later in life but 
my my argument is always I never would have gotten that per se job if I wasn't coming from my culinary school. Do you think there's a case when culinary school makes sense? I argue that my school sets you up to be a really good hotel chef. Like yeah. a really good like if you're going to do banquets, if you're going to do do like that kind of cooking, totally sets you up for that. Fine dining, Michelin restaurants? No. Not really, not you know. At all. Is there a case when culinary school does matter? I would say no. No? I would say no, but uh, you got to keep in mind my experience. Right. You know, I had a really, really brutal one. Um, you know, I went to the arguably the worst culinary school in the history of culinary schools. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, you say you would have learned in six months, I would have learned in a month. <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, right. But no, I, I, I stand by my statement. I mm-hmm. think that if you really want to be a cook or a chef, I think the most valuable thing that you can do is just go work in a kitchen, any kitchen. Mm. You know, you're 17, you're not going to get a job at per se. You're, they're not going to let you in, yep. even for free. Yep. But if you're 17 and you go work at anywhere and show some stability and motivation and ambition, I think that you will get picked up. And it's about establishing a network. You know, I have uh, friends or people that have worked for me that did that exact same thing. You know, they started out 16, 17 years old and they knew that's what they wanted to do. Um, and they just went and took a job at any kitchen at doing anything, you know, and uh, they just worked their way up. And, you know, they're, they're better people for it, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, no, I stand by my statement. I don't think there's any situation where culinary school is worth it. Got it. That's an interesting perspective. I, I mean, I wholeheartedly believe it. I don't think that there's... Um, again, I do think there's those specific use cases where it's like if you want to be a restaurant manager of a corporate location where they might require you to have some prior education to get that job maybe you have to do the culinary school part and if you're going to be managing the restaurant operations at a hotel i think it's valuable to have that uh four to five months in a kitchen so you can empathize with your employees who are going to be those cooks uh if cooking is not your thing but i i wholeheartedly agree that there's so much to be learned through real world experience absolutely um It'd be so interesting if the U.S. were to get that like apprenticeship system that happens in Europe and Australia, and what would what would the what would the industry look like if that's what people started off with, as opposed to an education or a culinary school education? I don't know. I think about it. Think about it sometimes. Uh, unfortunately, it'll never happen. <laughs> I mean, they just did away with it now. They, yep, they made it's it. It's gone. They, yeah, they. You can't work for free anywhere here uh, anymore. It's so sad. Um. Do you have any closing thoughts? Do you have anything that you want people to know? That where, where, where can people find you online if you want people to find you online right now? I'm not huge on social media. Yeah. Uh, I don't have Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have my Instagram, which is Chef Derek Boogie. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, just watch and wait and see what I do next because you know, you know it's going to be big. Totally. I don't do anything like we were talking about earlier. I don't do anything with just one foot in the water. Mm-hmm. I go all in. I go big. Mm-hmm. Um so just watch out for what I do next. Totally. It's going to be fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's been a lot of fun. I'm excited for you, man. Thanks. It's going to be good. Yeah. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to the Emulsion Podcast. I appreciate your ears more than you know. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help sponsor the show, head on over to patreon.com slash justincana. Other ways you can help out right now include giving this show a review on iTunes so more people can find it. I also love seeing you folks liking and commenting on the video if you listen that way, or even just share this episode with a friend. Now is normally why I would tell you that my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to, so I'm just going to get out of the out of the way here excuse excuse me